Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, we're hopefully sane and not alone. Finally, we're getting to grips with the haunting of Hill House. Shirley Jackson's masterwork. And yeah, I say that staunchly. Don't come at me with your lotteries and your merry cats. Hill House is where it's at. It's the dark fulcrum around which so much of contemporary horror turns. It's the book that ushered haunted houses into a whole new psychological arena. And, well, we'll get to all of that. Because in order to explore this epically haunted manse, I've gathered some friends. And not just any friends, but writers with a particular relationship to Jackson's novel. Paul Tremblay, Katrina Ward, and Johnny Compton. Paul's books share much of Jackson's disquieting indeterminacy. Cats map similar haunted interiors, both brains and buildings. And Johnny's The Spite House is the latest in a long line of uncanny architectural blights on the horizon. In short, this panel is machine-tooled for Hill House. I stupidly don't make clear which voice belongs to who, but I think you'll work it out quickly enough. And you'll know me, because I'm the one who drops his H's, which is tricky when discussing the haunting of Hill House. (laughs) We cover all sorts in the next 90 minutes, from the craft of that opening paragraph to the book's enduring legacy and quite a bit of random stuff like film recommendations with a similar atmosphere and our favourite haunted places. I think you'll take quite a bit from this episode. And as a reminder, if you do enjoy this kind of stuff, you can support the show by subscribing and leaving a review or if you want tons of bonus episodes and access to the Discord channel, you can join Talking Scared Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up, and many thanks for joining the haunt. But now, come with me to the most famous haunted house of them all. Inside, as you know, walls are upright, bricks meet neatly, and floors are firm. But dear Christ, it's horrible. (laughs) Alright, that's not quite up to Jackson's prose, but either way, let's talk scared. Cat, Johnny, Paul, welcome back to Talking Scared. I hope you're all well. Thank you. Uh, Hello. Yeah, hi, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to be here. Very excited. Well, thanks for doing this, for, for, for making the time, because uh, I'm really genuinely thrilled to have you three on board for this specific episode. The Haunting of Hill House is probably the most frequently mentioned book on this podcast right from the start, but it's about time that I finally d- devoted some actual attention to it. And you three are perhaps the most perfect trio to join me because, in my opinion, and and you can disagree on this, of course, but in my opinion, (laughs) you are each a sort of direct literary descendant of Shirley Jackson. I I can't really think of three people I'd rather discuss this book with short of resurrecting Shirley from her grave. (laughs) But even that, I I mean, am I right to make that claim? I don't want to offer leading questions. It's fine to say no, but do you feel the influence of Jackson in your work. 100%, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think she's. I mean, I think she's in the DNA of every horror writer, really. But but um, I mean, I know in particular for me, she's where I go whenever. I mean, every writer runs aground, don't they? With um, you know, just being feeling a bit infertile and a bit stale. And I find if you just pick up anything by Shirley Jackson, it it reinvigorates you. And um, it's so she's sort of very much built into to yeah to the to the kind of gothic I write. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a great way of putting it. I think when I first discovered her. That's not to say like the other horror writers I couldn't take seriously, but I think reading Shirley helped me take what I was reading more seriously because it, you know, it, it took, <laughs> it took that sort of, sort of attention to it. And like the amazing part is now like, I don't know what, 20, 25 years between first time reading this, mm-hmm. you know, I still get something out of, <laughs> I still get something brand new out of every time I, I reread this book. Yeah. It's amazing. Isn't it? That? Yeah. I completely agree. Same as everybody else. Um, I, uh, I I really think that I was doing a bit of an impression of Shirley Jackson when I wrote The Spite House, yeah. intentionally or otherwise, especially as I, like, like Paul, I hadn't reread it in however long, and I realized on the re-revisiting it that um, I think I probably stole more from, from especially The Haunting of Hill House than I had even initially realized, and there was <laughs> several points in The Spite House yeah. that I was very conscious, conscious of, oh, I, I kind of want to as much as I can echo or pay homage to the haunting of Hill house. And then there were other sections that would pop up and I would think, Oh my God, I, this has been more deeply embedded in my mind for all this time than I even realized because I'm clearly drawing influence from, from that book with this scene or this segment. So yeah, completely agree, Neil. Do you think there's a, there's a sort of inbuilt um, kind of uh, association that even no matter what the writer intends, if there's any kind of horror novel with the word house in it, it automatically <laughs> summons Hill House. I don't know. I, I think oftentimes it does. I mean, there are several, there's uh, we're going to, I know we're going to get into the first chapter of the book and the opening, the opening of the second chapter gets into the whole idea of the house has a face and it looks evil, yeah. which is yeah. very underrated because the first mm-hmm. chapter is so well beloved and, and so focused on. And every single, it seems like, haunted house story that has a cover of the house, you know, whether it's supposed to be nonfiction, allegedly like Amityville horror, or whether it's fiction, there's like been repeated. It seems almost ad nauseum, the house having a face, mm-hmm. the house has eyes, the house is watching us. And yeah. it, I don't know if it literally starts here, but it certainly feels like you can trace it all back to haunting of Hill house, this underrated opening to the second chapter. That's by the way, mm-hmm. every house it, and she says every house has a face and in particular mm-hmm. Hill House's face is just going to be even more menacing and evil. And so I think to your point there, Kat, it does reflect in almost every kind of horror story that focuses on some kind of old, strange, possibly inherently evil house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question to bring up. Like I'm sitting here, like I'm certainly not as well read in first half 20th century and you know 1900s gothic literature but like you know to me if it's not the first it's certainly the most successful horror novel or gothic novel where not only is you know in so many ghost stories the house is just decrepit and represents like decay but here you know the house is active <laughs> the yeah. you know the angular sort of dimensions and twists of hill house are you know are an active component that you know it is in a lot of ways the haunting um and you can see that sort of reflected in so many you know so many things that have come after one of my other favorite haunted house novels, you know, House of Leaves. Um, yeah. you know, there's no question that book is in conversation with Jackson as well as you know other haunted house stories. It, it, it perfect example of the house being a sort of human engine of horror as opposed to a, a site or, or location for a haunting. 
yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. House of Leaves, definitely. But just to be clear about what I mean when I say I think you three are literary descendants, you're giving your opinion on your work, but I picked you three to do this because I felt like this book needed a very particular approach. And I think in your work, Kat, there's so much of what Jackson does with kind of slippery psychological interiors that you seem to pick up on in your work. I'm thinking Looking Glass Sound, which I think is the most Jacksonian of your fictions. Um, Paul, you just do ambiguity. and it's, I'm not sure it's even ambiguity. It's like indeterminacy, <laughs> I think, is the word I would use. You know, it's mm. indeterminate meaning to almost every book you you write. Your books are giving me a way to articulate what I think about Shirley Jackson's books, because I think they have so much in common. Oh, honoured. And Johnny, you've written, in my opinion, like the latest iteration of the great American bad place, because we talked about this when you came on the show about, I think your book has so much reference to Salem's Lot and Mar the Marston House, um, mm. which is itself an avowed kind of reiteration of Hill House. So to explain to the listener, who perhaps are not familiar with all of your works, you should be, but if they're not, that's why this is the, the sort of horror Avengers that I've assembled for, <laughs> for, for this conversation. Um, so I feel like you're Dr. Montague now. Now we just have to figure out who the other... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, will, I will take that. I will take that very much. Yeah. Oh. Um, well, I think that makes... Johnny is definitely Luke. He's definitely the kind of playboy. So I mean, I just I just want to call not Eleanor. I mean, whatever, whoever, wherever we are, just spoiler yeah. alert: it doesn't go well. It seems a good point that we've introduced some key things. Let let me basically run the listeners through the, the briefest synopsis to Hill House because I've always got to do this this these deep dives with an acknowledgement that some people listen and they may not yet have read the book. And if they do, it's only fair we give them some kind of chance of grasping what we're talking about. So if you haven't read the book before, or if you haven't read it for years and you've forgotten the, the basic contours, this is the crux of Hill House. And guys, feel free to jump in if I forget something salient. But Hill House is this infamously haunted mansion. It's not ever made clear where it is in the in the States, but a lot of people seem to think it's in Vermont because that's where Jackson was writing from, and there's lots of hills, which feels very Vermontish. Um, and it's a very haunted house. It's been standing for 80 years. It will stand for 80 more. We'll get into all of that. But the crux of the plot is that Dr. John Montague is a psychical researcher who wants to make Hill House his laboratory for a few months. He wants to live there and do all these tests. And he puts out an ad for volunteers who have, have experience of some kind with the supernatural, and that gets winnowed down to just three companions, one of whom is Luke Sanderson. He's a sort of future heir to the to the house. He's he's young. He's a kind of smirking, charismatic playboy type that of the fifties. Um, then there's Theo Theodora, who has no last name and who is a sort of bohemian artist from the city, not so subtly coded as a lesbian. Um, and then there's Eleanor Vance, Nell, I'll refer to her as Nell mostly, who has a very sheltered life, spent looking after her invalid mother and being bullied by her overbearing sister. And Eleanor's our main, Nell, is our main character, our POV on the house and its incidents. And for various reasons, which we will talk about in depth, she's a very complex character. They move in, meeting the indomitable Mrs. Dudley, the cook and housekeeper who 
refuses to spend any time in the house after dark. <laughs> um, and then that establishing stuff takes us a fair way into what's quite a slight novel. And the second half is this sequence of increasingly weird occurrences, all of them definitely a form of haunting, but there are plenty of hanging questions and uncertainties as to who is haunting, what is doing the haunting, who is being haunted. And there's some very, very unnerving, but hard to articulate why they're unnerving scenes as the book goes on. Is that a fair summary? Have I left out anything the the listener needs to know at this point? Very fair. Yeah. Well done. Well well done, Neil. It's not easy to do. I've made it a completely bloodless thing. There's a lot more to it than that. It's a beautiful book. I've made it sound like an Ikea manual, but yeah, that's the, that's what you need to know. So where to start with it? I mean, I think we can only start at the start because easily the most famous thing about the Horns Hill House is it's, it's opening. I'm not sure Iconic even covers it. And I do think we need to read it out loud for those who don't have it imprinted on their brains. And I've talked too much. So Kat, in your ever so clipped English tones, could you oblige with the first paragraph of Hill House? Sure thing. Yeah, no, I, I love I love this paragraph. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Wow! Beautifully done. It's so good. Oh my god. And even reading it, you feel your skin crawling on your bones, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially with your read there, Kat, that was... That was really good. <laughs> I read it to myself as a bedtime story every night. <laughs> is that the best ever opening to a horror novel? Genuinely, is it the best? Hell yeah. I mean, I can't even think of any other first paragraphs that, you know, people talk about and go back to repeatedly. I mean, even how the, you know, the first sentence is just so lyrical, but then like Hill House not saying, just like you have to yeah, slow down for those, Ooh, yeah. those, you know, and that double, the double the two f- syllables. The four scariest yeah. words. Uh, yeah. I mean, it just announces yeah. what's to come or, or what your fear is to come. It seems to work for everyone who reads it. And usually really impactful passages are a personal thing, but that one seems universal and, and beyond simply it's great. Do you have any, like, um, as, as writers, which I'm not, I mean, I can do close reading all day long, but as I said, it's bloodless. It's an Ikea manual of a thing. As writers, do you have any deeper understanding of, of that, the magic of that that opening? I mean, well, I think there's a sort of reveal built into this, which I think is really clever, which is obviously the first um, paragraph is also the last paragraph of this novel. Um, and circular time is a huge factor of this novel. And, you know, um, returning, and um, you know, there's there's a sort of question as to whether any time really passes at all during this novel, which we can talk about that later. But really, her putting it at the, at the end for, uh, has accomplishes the the fact of the reader realizing what they may not have realized the first time round, which is um, whatever that thing that walks alone in the house might be, because you think it's the boogeyman or you think it's like a, a ghost or a haunting, whereas actually there is, of course, the thing that walks alone might indeed indeed be Eleanor herself, mm. who. And this is not a, a not a, a moment from 
before the action of the novel, but in fact it is you know, after Eleanor enters the fabric of Hill House and she is the thing who walks alone. It's one of the great it's one of the greatest, most subtle and, and perhaps earliest kind of versions of like the twist reveal in mm. you know and it's so it's, it's equally and perhaps even more chilling the second time. It never fails. To me, there's a mixture of cadence and image in that in that opening paragraph because that line, right, there's a line in there that seems to be the least essential to a horror novel. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. But when you read that, it's rhythmic. I mean, it's all, I was trying to parse it. It's almost iambic pentameter. It's not quite, but it almost is. And it's like a dance and it kind of whirls you into the book and into the house. You start reading and there's that, but that abrupt hill house, not sane which kind of jars you. You've got, like you say, you've got a pause for it. And yes. then even larks, and it whirls you on like, like a waltz. I, I, I don't know whether writers like literally think at such a granular level or whether it's just something they feel and like the rhythm of how they write, but it, it works. It, it pulls you literally into the book, into the house. It's also a complete contrast to that to that preceding line, which is, which sounds almost clinical and scientific. No live organism can t- continue. So you move right from something very clinical sounding to this rather kind of romantic imagery, which is which sort of throws you, I think, as, as a reader. It, it moves very quickly between genres, as in a sense. This paragraph, you know, it it, it moves between moods and and um, and styles really quickly, which I think is part of the disorientative effect. Yeah. Um... I would just add, you know, Neil, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, sort of the rhythm. Like, <laughs> I wish I was smart enough to to be able to plot that out. I mean, I definitely go by feel as a writer, but, you know, especially reading the letters of Shirley, it was a collected volume of letters that was published fairly recently. And the letters when she is working on Hill House are really fascinating. Like the time leading oh. up to it, the time during she's working on it. Uh, I would highly recommend, you know, the whole book is wonderful. I mean, you sort of hear her voice, but... I wasn't trained in writing. I don't know about, you know, Johnny and Kat. Uh, you know, I was have a math degree. <laughs> but, you know, one of the books that was important to me, I promise this will come back, is John Gardner's The Art of Fiction. You know, I can keep up with most of it, but the last chapter is about the purposeful use of different types of rhythm within the prose. And it sort of, you know, when I first read that, it blew me away that, whoa, someone's writing a novel and they're going to think about this AABA or whatever, uh, the way Gardner described it. You know, I know Stuart and Anne sort of writes this way where he, he thinks granularly about like the rhythm. I like to think I do, but it's more just off all and feel like I don't sort of diagram out like the rhythm, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out at least with the first paragraph, I'm sure surely probably diagram that out, you know, even if it's just like reading it aloud to herself, you know, however many times until she was happy with it. I was also thinking of, like you mentioned, Paul, the, the repetition, this isn't, you know, we, we see the final product obviously, but we always have to remember how as as a writer, this is your opening line too. You're probably going back over it. I, I don't know Shirley Jackson's process. I haven't read the letters. I'm looking yeah. forward to that though. Um, but revisiting what you've already written, I want to get it perfect. I want to get it in, in the shape that I want to present it to the world. Um, I think that there just is a lot that goes into that that kind of gets forgotten. I would be fascinated to see what other iterations there had been of this mm. opening that we didn't even get to see. Mm. You know, were there, was it more elaborate? Was it less elaborate? These are the things we'll never know, but I, I know that, you know, Shirley, or I'm confident that Shirley Jackson um, kind of combed through this multiple times and decided on that rhythm and decided I'm going to intertwine, like Kat said, several different kind of genre shifts almost 
it feels scientific and fantastical and menacing and it's it's foreshadowing it's foreboding uh it's ominous it's all of these things simultaneously and she wanted to probably form it perfectly in this way and to get there you probably aren't going to get that just immediately so just the efforts and the the fine tuning of it is that concept of it to me from a writing standpoint it's fascinating, and it's also a grand mystery. Like you said, that, Neil, at the beginning, there's so much ambiguity. It's one of those things, probably, you know, we, we never 100% know. If we look at the alliteration as well, like, there's a lot of scenes in this in this book that are scored like music. So there's a recurring theme, um, and it, it's and the way she does that is through sound. So you've got all of this kind of, like, flaws were firm, and then uh, silence lay steadily, stone, and whatever walk there walked alone, which is, you know, whatever walked, walked, that repetition. Mm-hmm. And she she does this a lot with sound. She conjures a theme, She in particular with the knocking scene later, which almost has the structure of a symphony, the way it's got you know, movements and, and then recurring refrains. But uh, she sort of gets your body in line with what the text is doing. So it's not just speaking to your mind, but with the da-dun, da-dun, da-dun. And with these repetitions, she's actually asking your body to do what the text demands. It's really interesting and um, it's a kind of subliminal um, act that the text performs and um, you know there are lots of things that writing does um, which is um, pure beautiful happy accident and there are some things that are absolute craft and deliberate um, structuring and this is I don't I you know you have to believe that she knew exactly what she was doing with that deliberate is the perfect word I was thinking like intentional but there's a real sense of this being deliberate in every single sentence you know like she knows what she's doing and she sets about doing it and does it as close to perfectly as i think anyone has ever done with a haunted house story whatever walked there walked alone what do we take from that what what does walk there like so is the house sentient is it all an accident of architecture and angles and atmosphere or is it haunted by a ghost a demon a genius loci is it haunted at all? I would like each of your diagnoses, please, on, on, what, on what, what the rot is at the heart of Hill House. <laughs> oh, boy. All of the above? I mean, I mean, I think that's what makes it so sort of still upsetting to me. Um, where For so much of it, there's sort of like the fun. I mean, there's the mix of the fun, like scared of the dark kind of stuff, like the thrill of a horror novel. But it, it just gets so personal and so, um, you know, so like into the id of Eleanor or, or, or Nell. I mean, I really think that, you know, for especially like the last half of the book, even rereading it now for the whatever of time, like I'm not sure what's <laughs> and I'll never be sure of what's in her head and what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that that progression sort of speeds up with sort of the pace of the or I hate saying the word pace. Pretend I never said it. <laughs> um, it it's sort of like. <laughs> that flipping back and forth between when was that in her head or is it not in her head or is it her thing to me is something that really sticks with me now. Like, you know, to the point where if I think there's a haunting, it's sort of taken root inside of, of, of Nell. Uh, you know, again, I, I keep feeling like this is her id being playing out for all the time that three people are like very cruel to her. And it almost feels like this is the cruelty that we imagine other people think about us when our back is turned, but it flips. And then they're sort of like, you know, very concerned with her. And then they are like actively telling terrible things to her, especially the, you know, Theo. Um, it's very unmooring. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered the question. I wish I could, I, I could have found the link. Uh, it was a British publication that did like, Oh, like what are your scariest lines in, in fiction? 
Um, hope, hopefully maybe I can find it for the show notes, but John wrote like, so like I think three or four people wrote about Hill house. John wrote about the end about, you know, since I'm skipping ahead a little bit when Nell, you know, is deciding, Oh, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to basically drive into the, to the rock. And then the last thing she says or thinks, uh, it's like, Oh, I think I'm wrong. Like, it's just so horrifying, like yeah. the implications and then, you know, what comes after. So it's someone will, why doesn't someone stop me? Why, why aren't they, why are they letting me do this? Yeah. And it, it comes abruptly. It comes so abruptly of her saying she's, she seems, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm almost, this is almost her revenge. I'm not leaving the house. They're forcing me to leave the house. I'm not going to leave though. Actually, this is my way of getting to stay. I'm going to die here on these grounds. But then at the last moment, like, like you guys have pointed out, it's this sentence, this horrifying sentence, ever so brief. She she's packed so much in this, in, into such you know compact moments like this, and she, why why aren't they stopping me? Why are they letting me do this? Um, and by the way, they might not even be letting her. They don't, uh, she's driving away from them, and I mean the the logistics of it or the, the layout of it, or you know you can kind of visualize it. It's all deliberately somewhat ambiguous, but even if they're nearby, what are they going right. to do? Like she's in the car <laughs> driving toward the tree. Like there's. There's, there's, we're not at a letting you do this mm. kind of point. Um, it, even if they wanted to stop her, they can't stop her. They've tried to actually do what they can to to save her, and she has turned it around on them. And yet, she, you know, in that last moment, she wants to live. Um, my my theory on it is, uh, I've I've thought about it a, a ton. Um, and I, I know this is just based in almost entirely on my love of ghost stories and. If I can, if there's something ambiguous, but I can say, you know what, it's probably a ghost. I'm always going to say, yeah, it's probably a ghost because I just, I just like ghosts. <laughs> um, but I, I do think the house itself is, I don't know if alive is the correct word, but I do think it is engineered in some way, whether by um, intent or accident, to kind of force whatever can come out of you psychically that will haunt you specifically force that out of you into this world, into the, into the house. And I do think that the people that whoever is there that walks alone could be multiple people. And that's to me even more frightening than literally, you know, Nell might be there by herself. She might be there with however many other ghosts have also, are also still in the house, but they're all still just alone. They can't, regardless of the fact that this house is, is now um, inhabited by multiple spirits, each spirit is still its own individual and can't it is it's being denied by the house any form of connection with anything other than itself which is just it reminds me of the um right i guess the it, since this precedes it by decades this is like kind of a precursor to uh the japanese um horror movie kairo where the ghosts that we find out that legions of ghosts are taking revenge on humanity and the reason why is because they're jealous that human beings still that are alive so get to connect with one another because they're no longer lonely and loneliness is like the pervasive, unimpeachable, unstoppable emotion of death. And you, you get to live on, but you're unstoppably permanently alone. And now they want everybody to feel this loneliness and Hill house is just what's haunting it ultimately is just this enforced never ending loneliness. And that is, I'm just saying that now. And that sounds sick. I got a little, I got a, I got a, Bad feeling in my stomach saying it now. I feel so bad for Nell. 
There's, yeah, the, the beauty and the horror of this book is you can you can put in infinite interpretations on it, and it still it stands up to all of them. I think what interests me m- most about, and this leads back to our, our preceding discussion about the first paragraph, is, is that this first paragraph I think is unique in perhaps in writing, in, in that it contains the entire novel for me. The very first line of the book has, it, for me, a real window into what this book might, what might, what Hill House might be, or what this might. Um, represent, which is that no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Um, now, it's, there's, lots of, there's lots of interpretations of that possible, I suppose, although two, two suggest themselves immediately, one being that the live organism is the house itself, um, and the house being a live organism, as perhaps mm-hmm. all houses are, has driven itself insane. Now, the other, like, other perhaps potential answer here is the live organism being described as Eleanor. So, um, and Shirley Jackson, I think, has a real affinity for those who cannot stand reality. <laughs> um, I think there's a real, I think there's a real suggestion in a lot of her writing that actually horror or the horror of being absorbed into Hill House, if horror indeed it may be, is preferable to the mundane uh, and, and you know the, dwind- the sad dwindling, dwindling away of life and the everyday grind, which actually, particularly in in terms of Hill House, I think is gendered as well. Like, um, I think there's a lot of feeling of what is the point of particularly being a slightly disempowered, financially dependent woman for the rest, you know, in 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 the society that sort of slightly scorns you. I don't know if you remember the bit with them. She knocks she knocks over an old woman with her shopping bag. Yeah, at some point, mm-hmm. and it's it's fantastic because it and the old woman is sort of has, has been to a brunch and she's stolen a lot of the food because she can't afford to eat, um, and there's a sense that Eleanor is count, encountering a, a future version of herself, and who wouldn't choose Hill House um, mm. uh, above yeah. above that in a way? Well, <laughs> maybe some would. I wouldn't. <laughs> um, the horror writers among us wouldn't, um, and. I think there's a real argument to be made that um, that that because that Hill House is a kind of time loop, and it repeats over and over, it repeats over and over and over again. But Eleanor has always been there and will always be there, and chooses it above. Um, sorry, I'm getting. It, this is the trouble of discussing Shirley Jackson. You want to say everything at once, and also try and, and every time you try and narrow down on something, it escapes your it escapes your your grasp. Um, I think the the house itself seems to like the, the book itself is like a vortex that draws you in with like interpretations and meaning. Yet there's no way to narrow down what it might what it might actually represent. Mm-hmm. But that's the sort of what the house is as well. Um, that's a very very uh, vague and slightly confused answer to your question. But no, no. But in a way, that readdresses the connection between Hill House and House of Leaves, because mm. my argument about House of Leaves has always been that 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 book is literally about the lack of through logic. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't, House of Leaves doesn't just escape logic. It doesn't just lack logic. It's about the inability to, to impose logic on a story. That's what mm. the actual theme is. And that just feels like a kind of postmodern extension of what Jackson's already doing, you know, 40 years previously. Yeah, one of the things that Kat was talking about was brilliant, obviously. Um, the idea of like existing in a, you know, in a pure state of reality, you know, driving the house mm. insane. On this week's reread, the thing that you know struck me that I've forgotten about is how much all the characters sort of fantasize about other things happening. Like it happens all 
the time where they imagine like a little story, you know, either they're talking amongst themselves, especially, you know, Theo and Nell do it, um, where they're, you know, supposing like the previous life of, of something or even just like some other circumstances, so much open talk of like their inner sort of fantasy lives. It's, it's really sort of stunning, uh, you know, on this reread that like I sort of, you know, glossed over that in my other reads. Do you think there's a sense in which this is, it's a kind of, um, um, kind of, you know, mid world, you know, a kind of, um, purgatory where, you know, people who, people whose lives have not been what they, what they wished are kind of trapped in, in some existential space. Is it a kind of no exit? Well, hell is other people. Mm, yeah. That was no exit forties, right? I think. I don't know. Let's see. Hold on. Let me check it now. It is, I mean, it is fascinating. Like when they first show up, like all the four of them, they're like as giddy as school children, the four of mm-hmm. them. Like they're all excited for this adventure. <laughs> Um, 1944, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right, you're on, almost on the nose, Paul, yeah. The only statement that is made about what's happening in Hill House is by Montague, um, the doctor. But again, he, what's quickly made apparent is that Montague is, is a very, very ill-equipped observer like all the rest of them are. His credentials are worth nothing in this house. But Montague says in very, very <laughs> strong patriarchal tones, he says, the evil is the house itself. It has enchained and destroyed its people and their lives. It is a place of contained ill will. And I think, and I, I'm not an expert in, like you said, Paul, in horror literature of the first half of the 20th century, because there wasn't much like this. But I think that's almost an entirely novel thing that we now take for granted that houses are repositories of ill intention, that the house itself has somehow become malign through some you know, events or architecture or whatever. But I think it's quite novel when Jackson did it. Because before Hill House, haunted houses tended to be like stages for a reckoning with history or with injustice. You know, they were Banquo's ghost all the way through. They were, you know, acts being replayed on a stage and you were there to see it or to, to participate or to redeem it or stuff like that. There's always an agency. Whereas there doesn't seem to be any specific agency in Hill's house. It's it's not a past darkness replaying in the present. And in fact, I would make the argument, perhaps, that Hill House is nothing if it's not inhabited. And I've often thought that maybe that's what the phrase whatever walk there walked alone means. Mm. That the thing that is there is alone. And until someone comes to the house, it has no power. And that's where we get to what Johnny said, whereas it becomes a kind of psychic amplifier, psychic battery um, for whatever people bring to the house. That's my take on the walk to loan. If a ghost haunts a house and no one's there to be scared by it, is it really haunting the house? <laughs> There's a line, and I can't think of it now, but from, um, I think it's from the short story, Who Goes There, of all things. Um, and it, it says, and I can't think of it now, but I, I God, it's been on my mind a lot recently because I want to, I want to, use it maybe as a title for something, but it, it basically says something to the effect of any ghost would starve if it was left alone mm. for as long as a certain body has been left alone. The short story who goes there is the, the basis for the movies, uh, the thing from another world and the thing. And so it's not a, a haunted house story at all. And they're, they're speaking of this kind of um, flippantly um, the, the person who says this line, but it just, stuck out to me. I was rereading that recently and it stuck, jumped out at me. It was like, man, what a great line. Any ghost would starve. And the mm-hmm. idea of just like, like you, you're saying, Neil, just being starved for attention and just wasting away and being inactive and kind of this, it, it 
might as well not exist, you know, for all intents and purposes, if nobody is there to witness and experience whatever, whatever it's going to display, whatever kind of stage, like you mentioned, it's, it's going to, you know, the kind of performance it can mm-hmm. put on. So as you're saying that, I, I think of that, and I'm, I'm just picturing now kind of the starving, empty house and the starving, you know, ghosts inside and, and just basically materializing because people have finally reentered and then just becoming nothing again, essentially, and wasting away entirely as soon as um, they don't have eyes set upon them or, or ears that can listen. Any, no, nobody there to witness or experience anything that they have to say or do. Even if it's you know something horrible, it's kind of like have you have you have you seen is it the film Ghost Story with Casey Affleck in the sheet? Oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember who directed. It. Is it David Lowery? Makes me and yeah, that goes yeah. back to the loneliness thing that you were saying. Like that is that film is existentially crushing. Have you seen that, Paul and Cat? No, 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 I haven't. Seen it's that. a very very arty. It's not a horror movie by any means. It's an arty film about this Casey Affleck. But he's, you never see him. He's in a sheet. He's he, he dies and he basically the film is his family's life going on without him. And he's in the corner of rooms just with a sheet over him, like a kind of like a Halloween ghost. And the idea is that he is there, but he cannot participate in anything. And he sees his wife get remarried. He sees his kids grow up. And it's just the most, like I say, existentially crushing film. It's not one to watch if you're feeling any in any way vulnerable. You know what I mean? But um, <laughs> but it, it very much, I think that film is born from Hill House. I don't think, you know, all of these things are connected, I think, very much. And, and there are no eyes set upon him. So, he, you know, sadly, he can't waste away, but he suffers in his isolation, even though he's in the same room as his family. Is that a film, Andrew Haig's new film, All of Us Strangers as well, which is about kind of um, this, I, I, except it's not the same, but it's um, about a man who suddenly is able to... Um, he goes back home and he suddenly finds his um his dead mother and father there and they mm-hmm. they reintegrate. Mm-hmm. It's I mean it's and it's not it's not like, again very much not a horror 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 novel, but in a way the very the very kind of recuperative nature of it has has a horror resonance as well because you know when things don't end when they should that's horror when things um, return when they shouldn't is horror. Yeah, I'll mention one more film. Uh, I am a ghost by H.P. Mendoza. Came out in 2012. It's a very sort of arty horror movie, and it is actually quite frightening. But it's really about this woman who's a ghost and who's sort of like stuck in a loop. Because uh, for a lot of the film, like there is no one there, <laughs> and oh. she's sort of like a lot of the horror of the, is the repetition of our, sort of what she experiences. Um, yeah, quite a quite an interesting book, or excuse me, movie. Jeez. <laughs> but and Paul, I remember Paul. You were the one who um, we had a long, very passionate discussion about this late Mungo, um, mm. which I think has got resonance of this as well. Which is just you know, in terms of um, family and holding, you know, and holding a ghost within. Um, but anyway, sorry, I digress. No, I think this yeah. is no, everything, absolutely everything you're talking about is the reason that I cling to my atheism as a, a sort of shield because I'm. <laughs> I'm just so delighted by, by the idea that when we die, we're gone. Because the idea of enduring in loneliness, that's exactly what I'm terrified of. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm a happy atheist because I don't want to think about this. I don't, I don't want a void after all of this, you know. Um, so I'll, I'll take a hole in the ground and yeah. maggots on the off chance that that is better than the alternative. So, Well, I think surely in the book, it's sort of taking that point of view somewhat. I mean, just one of the more horrifying, like straightforward, horrifying parts of the book is Hugh Crane's 
in the discovery of the of the stuff he was showing his oh, kids. Yeah. It's so mm-hmm. messed up. Um, you know, and there's you know no there's zero talk about praying. Uh, you know, throughout the book, I mean, I do think. <laughs> Neil, you're the PhD. You could put a better terms on it, but this very much feels like early modernist or postmodernist sort of haunted house or ghost story, right? I mean, it's been through the horrors of World War II and all the horrors that preceded it, and here's this mm. house, as you know, as as, as Johnny and Cat have also said, like it, there's no reason, like there's no, we're not given a reason as to why this is happening, uh, to, to why this place. I mean, and that to me is super frightening like you know mm-hmm. we, we all know like you know so many horror movies in particular i wouldn't say books but in movies where it's the lazy oh we have to have explanation as to why this is happening like you know especially in the hollywood side of things and that saps usually saps all the power of, of the story that's happening and you know this this book is just a battery that sort of feeds on our not knowing exactly there was, there's a lot of hints where we might think something we might be sure of what's happening but we're not one of the things I think is interesting, um, there's a line in the book about the house formed itself, uh, uh, uh. but then it immediately mm. says that it had builders and it, so it, it didn't just build itself. It had, so it's kind of, it, it built itself, but it needed other people to build it, but it possessed them. Like if you're taking it too literally, or it could just be, you know, lyrically beautiful and, <laughs> and kind of meant to screw with your head, which, which it also does. But I, I just love I, I, I read that and reread it. And then when I was I was doing the reread, I read it uh, on the page. And then I, I listened to an audiobook version because you get kind of like with Cats mm. Read earlier, you get this other sense with it. And it's 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 beautifully read. And I just I kept going back to that every time they mentioned that. It's like, man, the house formed itself, forced the builders to do its bidding, basically. And it's like this feels almost like it's a contradiction, but it's not. But it just ties into this this amazing ambiguity and, and to Paul's point, I, I love it. I, I much prefer that where we don't a hundred percent know why. What what even is the origin of this house? Why is it the way it is? Um that's that's terrifying. That that just adds to the horror that magnifies it so much. The idea that nibbles away at one's one's edges, isn't it, is that it's just a psych- a psychodrama, this great fever dream. Actually there is no Hill House and Eleanor is Hill House. It's just it's it's a sort of vast kind of allegorical interior drama where like when Eleanor keeps hearing her mother, it, she well she says it's not my mother knocking on the walls, but she hears you know all of, all of these things things in her life are, are present at Hill, Hill House already. I'm not saying this is the answer because there are no answers with Hill House, but there's an argument to be made that Hill House is just Eleanor's mind and body, and this is her this is her sort of reckoning. All three of your points can be brought together in the idea of legacy of Hill House, because you're talking about that thing, Johnny, that the sort, the, the sort of cognitive dissonance of the house built itself, but it had builders. Again, not to bang the postmodern drum, but that is that same cognitive dissonance is House of Leaves. You're reading mm-hmm. a book about a house, and at the end, you find out that you're reading the guy is burning the book to to escape the house and the book he's burning is the book you're reading and it's a kind of you know ontological knot of of impossible it's like an escher drawing right i don't think daniel lucy is doing anything thematically that jackson didn't do there's a lot of bells and whistles but i think you know it's the same through line and then you get the, the the midpoint between those is is the shining of course and I've got a lot to say about this book in relation mm. to King because, I mean, very briefly, this book is in the background of King's first three novels. So Eleanor 
in her youth, she's psychic and to some degree in her youth, um, there were stones that fell on her house. And just last night, mm-hmm. I recorded a deep dive into Carrie for the book's anniversary with Nat Cassidy and Ali Melanyenko. That's out in a few in a few weeks. But Carrie experiences a, a, a fall of stones at her house. Eleanor's sister is called mm-hmm. Carrie, which I think is definitely where the name has come from. If, if you're listening, Stephen, mm. let us know. <laughs> but that seems to me very much to be the through line. And she's a browbeaten, downtrodden woman who's had no experience outside her overbearing mother. She just, Eleanor is Carrie. I was going to say the mother connection. Yeah. And then you get the Marston House, which is the old, you know, the, Salem's Lot, the Marston House is the, the bad place. It sits above the town. You know, th- that book opens with an epigram of the opening of Hill House. And it is the Marston House just, just is Hill House um, with Hubie Marston being Hugh Crane. And then the, the one where it comes into kind of like thematic rightness is The Shining, where Jack is a sort of, not to get too up my own arse, but if Eleanor is a kind of Apollonian creature, Jack is the kind of Dionysian version of of, of Eleanor, where he's everything she isn't. He's worldly. He's a, a sordid drunk. He, you know, and all the things she's not. He has all this life, and he brings it to the Overlook, which is another sword like psychic battery, and it fucks him up in just the same way. And you get that same sort of slippage of time and now and then, and you were always the caretaker. You were always here. You know, Jack is walking the, the halls of the Overlook, and he's walking them alone. You know, and I, I, I just think. The legacy of what Jackson did via The Shining, via House of Leaves, it's that thing that you're saying about essentially indeterminate meaning and the impossibility of meaning and everything collapses down in the end. I just think it's all one big maze, this late modernist, post-modernist haunted house where we no longer go, oh, that's the ghost of the old landowner who killed the nun, and we understand him. We don't understand anything. The metaphysics are in complete flux. Someone say something. That was a massive rant on my part. No, well said. Very well said. (laughs) No, I concur. You know, we could talk for hours about her, about Jackson's sort of influence. Like one of the joys of of getting to work with the Shirley Jackson Awards for over 10 years was, you know, we would have the Shirley Jackson Award ceremony at ReaderCon, a small local convention, and ReaderCon was typically more of a science fiction fantasy convention, but without fail, you know, the science fiction writers and the fantasy writers, the guests of honors w- would speak at the, at the award ceremony and speak passionately about what Shirley Jackson meant to him. You know, writers like, you know, different writers like, you know, Jonathan Lethem, Nisi Shaw, like uh, Caitlin Kiernan, Victor Laval, like all these people. And it was just really sort of humbling and, and, and in a weird way comforting. Like, Oh yeah, all these people see it too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you know, see this. And it was, I don't know, that, to me, that's like the really sort of cool part of her. I feel like it's been like sort of like a renaissance rediscovery of her work, you know, mm-hmm. within the last 10 to 15 years, you know, especially help with Ruth Franklin's, um, you know, biography and obviously sort of the Netflix series and just this explosion and renewed interest in Jackson because I don't know the other magic part of her work is it's, it's, it feels like it was written now still. So yeah. many of her stories still feel like they were written now. And Ellen Datlow's anthology, which I talk about all the time on this show, you know, When Things Get Dark, which, inspired by Jackson alone, contains my two favourite short stories of recent years, Tiptoe by Leigh Barron and Kelly Link Skinder's Veil, you know, like, yeah. my favourite short stories of like the last 10 years, inspired by Shirley Jackson, that that says something, I think, you know, about her her, her contemporary currency. 
as a writer. But, you know, we, we've got very conceptual and very, very big picture. Let me ask you a more, I don't know, prosaic question. Do you have a favourite scene? Do you have a, a scene that you think is the scariest scene in the book? I reckon at least two of you are going to say the same one. <laughs> well, actually, the, on the um, that article that Paul was talking about, I I did I contributed to that article where you know what's the scariest scene, and many many other horror writers chose the same scene, which is the, whose hand was I holding? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pick that one. I want to pick the cup of stars scene. It's my favourite scene. Can you please explain that scene to me, Kat? Because that scene yes, baffles me. I read it and I'm always like, what are we getting? At? <laughs> what, what is this emblem? What what are we doing here? So this is perfect. Tell me, explain it to me. <laughs> I don't know, like with with, with all of Shirley Jackson's workings, I don't know if I can explain it completely, but I can explain what I take from it. Hill House is full of anxiety and um, dislocation and disaffection and misery and, and, and fear. But there's this one scene which is full of joy. On the way to Hill House, after Eleanor's left her other miserable lodging she shares with her mother and knocked over the old woman with the, with the, with the, with the shopping, um, she's driving through, through the country and she feels this great weight dropping away from her. And she stops for lunch, I think, by a, I think it's by a, um, a mill or a, or a waterfall. She's eating lunch and there's a family next door at the next table to her. Um, and there's a little girl who is drinking from her cup, um, which has stars all over it. And she keeps demanding her cup of stars. And the mother sort of saying, does not want to give it to her. And, and the girl gets very upset and demands it. And Eleanor thinks, yes. Demand your cup of stars. Don't be don't be happy with anything else. Like dem- make sure you get your cup of stars. I mean, for me, it's this very. Um, it seems psychologically clear th- things. I mean, I mean maybe <laughs> I don't want to be again on the conceptual level. So maybe as the old woman who Eleanor knocks over with her shopping is the future Eleanor. Maybe this is a, an image of Eleanor in her past, where there was a moment where she could have demanded her cup of stars. She could have demanded what what she um, needed from life. Um, and she didn't. But it's a, it's a strangely beautiful, otherworldly, peaceful, tranquil scene. There's no angst or um, fear about it, or, or regret even. There's just um, and it just looks at her and, and feels with with this little girl. Yes, you know, you, you go, you you take what you want from life. And there's, I mean, it's in Jackson's trademark, otherworldly kind of, you know, dreamlike. Um, way I think it has you know that resonance about you know to be I think at that time a woman slightly a slightly use societally perceived as useless woman um and, and the decisions you can make I just think it's really beautiful and I, I like just I know that that was one of the things you wanted to bring up as well Neil and I, I've been thinking about that scene and I think everything Kat said resonates really well there and the lead up to that moment with the cup of stars and it keeps coming. She, she brings up the cup of stars again. She fixates on this thing and the lead up to it. She's had two different daydreams um, on the way to Hill house about the, the house with the lions, the stone lions and how she would be basically the, the perfect caretaker of that and actually be taken care of by an older woman as opposed to she has to take care of her mother. She has another dream of basically awakening entire um, kind of sleeping village um, by becoming like kind of the, the, the perfect enchantment, living enchantment that would awaken them. Yeah. And then something as simple as the cup of stars she fixates on. And then later on when she's talking to Luke, which is interesting, everything's been kind of very, I think, vague, um, as we've talked about. And people aren't really specifically or expressly or, or explicitly expressing themselves. And when she gets with Luke late, late in the book, relatively late in the book, she is pretty open 
with the reader and with Luke about certain things. And she says, nothing of the least importance has ever belonged to me. Right. And this cup of stars is like of the least importance, basically. Like it's, it's just a, a child's cup that has stars. And it sounds, when you first hear it, it doesn't even sound like, oh, what it is, which is mundane. It's a cup that just has stars printed on it. And you can kind of see the stars as you drink. But when you first hear it, the woman says, well, she wants her cup of stars. And that sounds like something out of mythology, yeah. like, oh, like the, the mythical cup of stars that, you know, somebody um, first splashed into the cosmos. And that's where we get all of the. Yeah, the, the, it's, the it's, it's strangely, it's strangely sort of not sentimental, but strangely evocative and kind of like, yeah, like emotional for Jackson, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that for Eleanor and as Kat said, I mean, it's open to a variety of interpretations, but I think it's her way of locking in on kind of like what Kat just said, this is almost her, her as a child getting to relive childhood. And what if I had just as a kid one time insisted on this, my, my own version of a cup of stars, mm. could I have then had all of these dreamlike adventures and things that I want in my life? Because not long after that, all of her dreams before, again, she even gets to Hill house come crashing back down to reality. And this kind of gets back into the, what was mentioned earlier, the horror that Kat mentioned, the horror of reality as compared to the horror of Hill House. For for Eleanor, she goes then to get the coffee, and it's apparently some really bad coffee. She's trying to speak to the people in the store about, isn't it just wonderful probably to live here? The hills, everything seems nice. It seems like a place where people from the city would come to escape and go on vacation. The old man there tells her, no, people just try to escape from here. The young lady serving the coffee says, "At least I, I wish they just had something like, we don't even have a movie theater here. And Eleanor's over here like, but you've got the hills and you've got all this this place to this space to wander and imagine things. And like the, the city, what would you even you know want to have something as mundane as a, a movie theater? And but that's what the young lady wants there. And so this this immediate contrast of reality, um, Eleanor's still going all she can hold on to it feels like at the end of it is the cup of stars. And she, you know, right after that scene. Right after that is when she confronts this, 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 uh, this really kind of blunt um, acceptance or you know attempt of, of the universe to get her to accept the idea that things are pretty normal actually for most yeah. of us. Um, there, it's not this kind of fanciful, you know, it's not it's not the larks and katydids getting to, per chance to dream. It's just you wake up in the same old town every day and and uh, have some bad coffee and wish there was a movie theater here. Do you think it's like everybody's hell is different? Yeah, totally. Totally. My thing with A Cup of Stars is it comes up again later when Eleanor is lying to Theo mm-hmm. about this life that she has at home with a, a little apartment. And on this read through, that struck me as literally the saddest part of the book because mm-hmm. Nell has fled like the humdrum of her life to come to Hill House. That's why she's so happy just to be anywhere. And she tells these people, these new friends, this whole alternative fabricated life. And everything she tells is based upon something that she experienced during that brief journey to Hill House. And it's the implication, the awful implication, that her life has been so small, she's seen so little, had so little to draw upon, that that single journey is the only basis that she can draw on for a lie. I actually see it as quite a haunting scene, that cat. It's like a filing away this thing as just some desperate detail in this absolute blank canvas of a life. 
And I think that's right. I think that's why it stands out for me, stands out in the book for me so much. And it's almost like the opposite of a harbinger, you know, <laughs> the classic, <laughs> like it's an anti-harbinger, the classic sort of, um, you know, warning sign that stops you on the way to whatever, like whatever, whatever terrible, terrible thing, fate awaits you in a, in a horror film or a horror movie. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I didn't connect this until just now. Uh, you know, because we started by talking about like favorite scene or scariest scene, because those are two different things to me. Honestly, like one of my favorite scenes is when Arthur and Mrs. Montague show up because it is so damn funny. <laughs> but, you know, you know, Nell wants the house to be like her attraction. Part of the attraction is she wants that house to be her cup of stars. She, it's like she's trying to will it to happen. But yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there's a scene that's that's yeah, maybe about like 50 pages from the end where, where you know, the guests have arrived. Theo and, Ella, uh, and Nell are outside. Um, and it's night and things get just so weird. And like the first few times I read this, I don't think I, I could clock it because it was just so strange and upsetting, but I'll just read this little bit where they're outside on either side of them. The trees silent relinquished the dark color they had held paled grew transparent and stood white and ghastly against the black sky. The grass was colorless, the, the path white and black. There was nothing else, right? The sky has no stars. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, in retrospect, especially as you get towards the end, I mean, to me, this feels like this is a maybe a glimpse of what it's going to be like for Eleanor left alone at Hill House, right? This black sky, like the weird white, like this to me is the strangest part of the book, the, the part that feels the most overtly fantastic because, you know, she's describing as this landscape has changed color. It's this weird, like photo negative of things. Um, you know, she goes on talking about her eyes hurt with the tears against the screaming blackness of the path and the shuddering whiteness of the trees. You know, and it goes on. She says, now I am really afraid. Um, utterly unnerving, especially now in, in the, the, the reread. This is why I like doing this. I would never have picked up on that in a million years. I could read it another 10 times. That would have escaped me. You know, when you get four people together, you don't half get into a lot of stuff <laughs> that you wouldn't normally get on a, on a solo read. I would just say something about Mr. Like Dr. Montague as well. Like, okay, so just as, just as I think Shirley Jackson reaches forward, in time and affects all of us, including the great Stephen King. Also, there's a sense in which she reaches backwards. So um, there's a story, which I'm sure you're familiar with, all you're well, probably all familiar with, because it's such a staple of the horror genre, is um, A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. Yeah. So this is... You know By M.R. James, listeners, just in case you need to know. By M.R. Yeah. James, exactly. Montague Rhodes James. Mm. Um, and um, uh, there's this, it's, um, it involves, like um, that famous... Um, hand-holding scene and indeed the knocking scene two twin beds in which one of them is is occupied and one of them, one of one of them is occupied when it shouldn't be um there's a sort of there's a sort of mirroring between um hill house and and um mr james and i think this is a, i think this is sort of in that particular story there's lots of things in common with it that reverberate and i think that i don't want to take up too much of your time with this but i think <laughs> Um, L. James considered himself like the editor of horror, of of the gothic, of the ghost story. He back in you know back in back in his day, he was um he 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 considered himself an arbiter. He wrote and published the the inviolable rules for the ghost story. So is this a sort of joke? Is there an insertion of <laughs> Dr. Montague, who is not M.R. James, as being the sort of editor and sort of controlling of the narrative of, of the ghost story? I don't know. Anyway. It wouldn't surprise me. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah that is cool. I just think about that. 
I would only briefly add as a as a gift. Edit, my editor Jennifer Brell, her husband Peter Schneider, has been someone who's been sort of like working in horror publishing, and he collects stuff. Anyway, he didn't send me the book because it's very rare, but he sent me like photo, beautiful full color photocopy of the book, The Alleged Haunting of Bee House, a journal kept during the tenancy of Colonel Lemeshire Taylor. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Shirley Jackson read this book like before uh, Hill House, so I think. The main sort of inspiration is probably, you know, sort of like, you know, the investigative nature of part of the plot of Hill House. But it's just sort of, even the title is sort of funny, like this, during the tenancy of Colonel Taylor. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I have to admit that I haven't read it yet just because it's like a big, weird pile of paper. But I probably should read it. That's amazing. Because I knew she based it on um, a genuine sort of psycho, uh, psychical investigation. But I didn't know there was an actual book about it. That's cool. Yeah, it's B House. It's B dash dash dash. It's okay. left like the actual name of the house is obscure, yeah. purposefully obscured for some reason. I wonder if it was Borley Rectory, maybe because that was all. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, Harry Price and all that stuff. Well, and that gets referenced up in you know the Borley Rectory gets referenced in in Hill House and along with Glam's Castle, which is one of my favorite hauntings. I think we talked about that before. I, I love the the haunting of the myriad hauntings allegedly of Glam's Castle, and I forgot that. I think that this. Yeah, this was like one of the things that is near and dear to my heart. Do you guys know about Glam's Castle? I do not. I don't either. No. Oh, Glam's Castle. It's it's where the Queen Mother was born. Um, tell us about Glam's Castle. Oh, it's got it, it's allegedly um home to I guess myriad um hauntings. I think it's partially rumored to be like partially like a, a an inspiration maybe for Macbeth or something. There's a Macbeth connection, I think. Um also one of my favorite uh one of my favorite hauntings ever allegedly a Earl in the castle was addicted to gambling and wasn't prone to getting drunk, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and I mean, I don't even know if you call this a haunting, but allegedly at one point he couldn't find anybody in the castle to play cards with him. He said, I'll play cards with the devil himself. If I have to immediately a stranger, a tall stranger dressed in all dark arrives at the door and says, um, I heard that, you know, you were looking for somebody to play cards with. They go to a private room um, to play cards. Uh, they hear the, the, the Earl, uh, at one point, sounding very upset, uh, a, a servant tries to look through a keyhole to see what's happening. Is immediately blinded by what is presumably of like a flash of hellish light. They open the door. The stranger is gone. The the Earl is. Um, I've heard different versions of it. Either they're both gone. Sometimes I've heard just the stranger is gone. Either way, the devil has won his soul in a card game. That's just one. I mean, and that's like one of my favorites. The one I love is the monster of Glam's. Yes, yes. Supposedly, like one of the. One of the, the the earls or landowners or aristocrats had a very very deformed son who they locked away, um, and it's the it's the origin of that apocryphal tale about a building where they they hang sheets over all mm -hmm. the windows, and then someone goes outside and there's a window that's unsheeted, which means there's a secret room, um, and the same that the same myth was applied to. I went when I was at university in Durham. I actually lived in Durham Castle. 11th century castle and i lived in the turret and it was exactly the same myth about that that if you covered up all the windows and went outside there would be one window still uncovered secret room there actually was a secret room in durham it was beneath my bedroom but there was never any hauntings whoa oh wow but in glams there is that there's quite a lot of genuine compelling evidence that there was a deformed son and he was locked away, and that he was taken out of the battlements at night and walked around, and that it's maybe, you know, the more the more um, salacious details are, are not real, but that the actual rudiments of the story are based in fact. There's quite a lot of evidence come to light 
everyone, listeners, go and read about Glam, go and visit Glam's Castle. I, I've been; it's a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah, um, but Johnny, your favorite scene, or the scariest scene, or whatever from this book, which scene leaps out for you? My favorite scene um, on this reread. Every time it's something, I feel like it's been something different. Um, but what's always nagged at me, and I just fixated on it again late when she's talking to to Luke, and I, I just love that whole conversation. And then I feel like maybe Eleanor confessed a little something. Um, she says, it was my fault my mother died. She knocked on the wall and called me and called me and called me and I never woke up. Well, if you never woke up, then how do you know she was knocking all that time? Yes. And so I, I, I fixated on it this time and I was like, I've been giving her, the, I, I really still love Eleanor. I, I'm always rooting for her. I, I found that I, I was, I, early in the book this time, rereading it, I was just thinking, I, I'm rooting for her so much and I know she's doomed, but I'm just like, I'm really hoping she figures it out this time. And I know it's not going to happen. And I, I'm never that kind of person who's like, you know, you're rereading. You're like, Oh, I'm actually rooting for somebody who I know is doomed to this time. But I really just felt for her going back to what Kat mentioned earlier, her, her, when she crashes into the old woman early on and later on when she's, you know, she thinks to herself when she's talking to Luke, she says, all I want is to be cherished. And I was trying to find the right, right word. And I was like, Oh yeah, it's right here in the book. Cherished. More than just loved, admired, um, appreciated. She wants to be cherished. And this old woman briefly, after damning her repeatedly, then cherishes the fact that Eleanor is at least willing to pay for her cab, says she's going to pray for her. Late in the book, Eleanor is thinking, at least one person is mm. praying for me. I've got one person. And she's just, whatever one thing she can grab onto, it's a cup of stars, it's this or that, one damn thing. So I'm rooting for her. But at the same time, then I'm like, I think she might have let her mother died. <laughs> and it's at the same time that I'm like in this scene and it's, it kind of gave me a little bit of a chill. Cause I'm like, I'm, she's so confessional in this conversation with Luke and she's so revealing of herself. And she's really seems to be coming to terms with who she is. I'm like, I think she also just let her mom die. Like this is the person I've been rooting for this whole time. And it feels like she just confessed to something that nobody else even really picks up quite on. Yeah. But it, it might just be her imagination though. She might've just dreamt it. It might have been something that leaked into her dream, like the way your alarm going off while you're still dreaming and you wake up and it's like, oh, hell, I realized I was my alarm's been going off for like five minutes and it was just in my dream is this this thing could be that. But part of me suspects because also my my again, theory, because I love a good ghost. So I'm always going to latch onto that is that part of what activates Eleanor specifically in the house is that perhaps what Eleanor may or may not have done to her mother is echoed by the caregiver for the, uh, the sister that inherited the house. And Dr. Montague says there are rumors that the caregiver let the, the elderly lady mm. die. And that would mirror what happened with Eleanor and her mother potentially. And then by the end of the book, when Eleanor is endangering herself, she's going to the same turret where that caregiver allegedly hanged herself. So kind of like Kat said too, some of these things, echoing in time um but all of that combines in those moments to make that my favorite scene it is you know not conventionally the scariest but in a way it makes me think of things in a, in a because i i am on this latest read kind of convincing myself i think eleanor really did let her mother die and we don't we get the the sense that her mother was domineering but then you reread it there's not a hell of a lot of evidence <laughs> that her mother was all but we don't get a whole lot of Stuff here that shows her mother was like some tyrannical figure that that much. Um, so then it's like, damn, maybe she just got tired of caring for this poor old lady who's can't get out of bed and needs her medicine. And she heard her knocking was like, I'm, oh my just, God. I'm yeah. pulling the covers up over my head. 
<laughs> letting this go. I never, I never spotted that. That sound. Yeah, same. I had spotted that, but I think I have a quite a sinister mind, so I think I always think everyone's. <laughs> like, um, we're supposed to. We're supposed to have sinister minds. We're yeah. horror writers. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Well done, Johnny. Thank you. Yeah. Right. To think about. No, especially the connection to the the previous maid. Damn. Yeah. After reading again, now it's almost like this book's really smart. You know. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite scene is also something that's kind of blink and you'll miss it a bit like that. Um, and this is perhaps me going in pursuit of a more conventional ghost story. But I love the character of Mrs. Dudley, this just irascible housekeeper, mm. who, who's clearly parachuted in from a different kind of horror story. She's like pure hammer horror. She should be like, you know, with the girl in the nighty and the screaming ghouls. Like it's this thing like, I don't stay here after dark in the night. Just keep saying it. It's so mm-hmm. over the top compared to everything <laughs> else. Um, I love it. But there's one bit where like Eleanor, well, all the gang goes into the kitchen and there's all these doors going off the kitchen. Um, Seemingly like far too many doors. And Eleanor kind of muses to herself. She says, quote, I wonder what Mrs. Dudley is in the habit of meeting in the kitchen so that she wants to make sure she'll find a way out no matter which direction she runs. Mm. I want to know what Mrs. Dudley has seen. When I spoke to Liz Hand about her her sequel to this, I was like, "Tell me that story. What what has Mrs. Dudley seen in her in her nights and years alone in that house? Because I bet that makes for a great story. Just the implication that there is stuff we'll never know. Really dark stuff we'll never know. What has she seen in that kitchen? Why has she got husbands to put extra doors in? I just I love that. Yeah, just hearing that again, I. God, yeah, the idea of like, I need to make sure I have a, a quick yeah. exit. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when Theodora, the, the, one of the last, uh, before Eleanor's final kind of descent, one of the last big scares they have and, and her and Theodora running from something, Theodora looks back. You don't, you, yeah. we never find out what she saw, but it leaves her like kind of hysterical briefly. Mm. Exactly like what you said. We, we don't know what people are seeing, yeah. but it is, it is stuff that they don't mm. want to ever see again. Or, or if they do see it, they want to be able to get away from it quickly. The frightening thing about that is, why does she stay? Like, you know, is she, <laughs> what, what is it that holds her there? You know, despite this horror, mm-hmm. um, despite the idea, the need for you know more doors in the kitchen. I, I don't know. I find that really horrifying. It's it's almost like she enjoys some some part of her is gravitating toward that sinister quality of it. I love Neil that you mentioned like the, it's the old hammer horror, the old school like uh, what they call like the old yeah. dark house. Yeah kind of movies that they used to have where like you said it's you know strangers in the night arrive in the rain and it's like oh you can come in here but you know just know after a certain hour like i'm gonna be on this side of the house and if you scream nobody yeah. will come and like they're giving you these odd warnings and you're like well why the hell do you <laughs> even live here still like to cat's point like shouldn't this place just be empty and abandoned it's a more just great high camp and otherwise very uncamp novel, you know. It's like, like like you said, Paul, when when Mrs. Montague and Arthur arrive, who are clearly shagging behind John Montague's back, you know, they're clearly up to all sorts. <laughs> but he, Montague's just so browbeaten, he just can't be bothered with the argument. It's just it's high comedy in an otherwise very very yeah. somber book, you know. But you know, four horror writers, and not one of us picked the whose hand am I holding scene. And and for those who maybe don't know what that means, it's one of the most brilliantly conceived 
sort of jump scares or at least chills mm. in, in horror fiction where Nell and Theodora are, are in bed while things are banging on the walls and they're hold, they, they've pushed their, their twin beds together and they're, they're holding hands. And then Nell looks over and realises that Theodora's on the other side of the room and she just wonders whose hand was I holding. And gee, I mean, that idea alone is all time, right? That is an all time scarcity. Absolutely horrendous. It's it's brilliant. It's hard to get a jump scare on the page, and it it lands so perfectly. Um, and then that like we transition to an entirely different scene out of that. Like you can visualize it as a movie. Mm. Literally, the last line before we go to the next segment is "Whose hand was I was I holding?" And then it's just like it just leaves you with that that chilling feeling. You could set the book down there and take a walk <laughs> no. if you need to to dispel your yeah. nerves. It was the first time. I remember the first time I ever read this book, it was a Sunday morning, lying in bed on a Sunday morning. I was like, oh, this horror, this like gothic classic, <laughs> this harmless, benign gothic classic. Let's pick it up. I've never read it before. And um, when I got to that scene, I I felt the world shift around me in a really unpleasant seismic way. Mm. It brings us to a discussion of Theo as we draw towards an end, because even though she can be awful, I, I love her as a character. Everything between... Nell and Theo, that scene in particular is just suffused with, you know, sexual tension, I suppose, or at least romantic tension. I don't you decide, um, mm-hmm. I suppose, decide for yourself. But but I, I've long been baffled by people who think Theo's queerness is subtle or, or in doubt because she's overtly queer coded for me. And, and that's not even through contemporary eyes. I think at the time, you know, the genderless references to her friend, um, her discomfort and amusement mm-hmm. when someone mm-hmm. asks if she's married. And, and, you know, the book is now rightly celebrated for not burying its gaze. But more than that, I wonder to what extent her relationship with Nell is, is crucial to what's going on because it it feels like it is. Because there's, there's loads of little illusions that I've picked out this time. Things like, like Mrs. Dudley is always saying, you know, I won't be here in the dark. And then there's a little throwaway line where Eleanor's in bed and there's this thing which says, Eleanor giggled, thinking of herself, calling, oh, Mrs. Dudley, I need your help in the dark. And then she shivered. Now, I may be <laughs> being a dirty old man, but that reads in a certain way to me, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, I would say, like, not, not on the surface, but I mean, you know, in, in sort of the gothic tradition, this I mean, their relationship to me reads like this really doomed love story. I mean, I feel mm. like, especially on the reread, I just felt, you know, terrible for both of them, but especially... Nell and I was really cringing when she was like begging to to go home with Theo. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can sort of read as Theo's like, "Do I have to spell it out for you? Like, why you can't come home?" I mean, I think that that's all there, but at the same time, you can tell she, you know, she cares for Nell. I mean, I think when they're sort of expressing like their friendship, that to me it feels like the least the least sort of tinged by this isn't happening sort of scenes. Like, I, I think those uh, they feel like real, mm. honest, even if they are coded sort of discussions between those two characters. So part like Theo in a lot of ways, like to go back to the cup of stars. I mean, th- this is all the things that, you know, she was dreaming about and didn't know that she could have like to go back to that sort of idea of the child and the cup of stars. Didn't know she could have this and, and sees a glimpse and chooses, <laughs> chooses the house, chooses oblivion, even though like her, 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 like we can talk about how her will sort of rebels at that at the very end, but no, I, I find it terribly sad. Yeah. I think, I think horror in itself, it's got a sort of real affinity for queerness and, and, a real, a real sensibility for it. I think that there's a sort of yearning for perhaps all the other lives that Eleanor could have had, and perhaps that's that's one of them. But there's definitely this 
yeah, there's definitely a kind of, it's quite a gen, when her and Theo are getting on, it's very, again, it's like the Cup of Stars moment, isn't it? It's that, there's a, this rare moment of joy where you're kind of, where she mm. finds like, this great this communion and community. Maybe it's just being able to have a friend. I think there is, yeah. I think there is a definite romantic element as well. But yeah, you're right. The, the friendship thing slides into it. I think she needs a friend far more than she needs a lover, mm. right? Because as that refrain all the way through, journeys end in lovers meeting. It's something that she keeps, right. it's a song she hears and she's singing it and she keeps saying it over and over again. And there's a, a sort of search, a sense of, I always think there's a sense of Eleanor searching for someone to fulfill that role. It, she's always thinking journeys ending lovers meeting. And it's like she's looking at Luke saying, is it you? At times right. looking at Montague, mm-hmm. is it you? Never quite looking at Theo, but that in itself speaks volumes, you know, but, I mean, I always take it that the lover at the end is the house, that that's who the lover she meets, that she meets the house. But yeah, she needs a friend way more than she needs any romantic partner at this point. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. And I think she's she's very um, fixated on the idea of acts of service. And this is a, a very strange connection to make, but I couldn't help but making it because there was a documentary that came out about the Roosevelts not too long ago. And somebody mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt, apparently. Um, became fixated on this idea of she had a very unhappy childhood. I saw, I couldn't help it. I kept hearing Eleanor, and I, I, I really liked that documentary. And uh, I was like, oh, this is this is like Eleanor Roosevelt and unha- unhappy childhood, and the idea of acts of service. And Eleanor is really in early on when she meets Theo, and she identifies, um, you know, Theo kind of needs to be the center of attention, and so she then feels like she's she's being in service to Theo of I'm going to pay attention to mm. you or come sit next to me. I'm going to do these things to kind of give you this thing that I think you want. And then in turn, you're going to reciprocate and make me feel fulfilled. I definitely think I agree that uh, um, it's, it's barely even coded. Like you said, um, you know, as, as much as necessary at the time and, and even today, what have you, but I definitely think Theo is, is, um, is queer. Yeah. I, I think Eleanor is kind of, as you mentioned, needing a, a, a friend more than a romantic partner, but I kind of, I, I came up, I don't know if this is a term or not, but in my, my head, I was thinking she's like kind of pan romantic. Yeah. She's going to just go to whomever or whatever, like you said, maybe even at the end, it's the house. She's going to graft onto them in a way that goes beyond friendship eventually anyway, because she is in such, des- such need of this. Like I said, like the line, all I want is to be cherished. You know, she, she wants to be a friend and even more, and she's going to, be that for whoever responds to her acts of service in a way that she finally feels like, Oh, they appreciate me. And I feel like that's why she fixates on the, the old lady Mm. at the beginning that she bumps into even, and she's still thinking of them at the end. And there's one person praying for me because this lady appreciated the fact that I I bumped into you. I apologize. I apologize for spilling your food. Can I buy you some more? And the the old lady says, no, but you can at least buy me a, a, a cab. I'll do that. And the lady switches from, initially being so angry with her that by the end she's saying I'm praying for you and, and cherishing her and she can't like by the end she can't let go of that so I feel like she's she's going to meet that friend and eventually that's going to become something more with whomever she can find that is going to give her what she is she is yearning for and in the end she finds the house tragic ending but uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what I really think about it but she ends up with her partner it just happens to be a house. a house, you know, a, a void, I suppose. She ends up, right. the thing she finds, the lover she finds is a void, which is either weirdly heartening or truly disturbing, and I don't know which it is. 
Well, it's if if it, if our theories, as we stated earlier, are correct. I think Cat was the first <laughs> to posit this. It's ex- extremely yeah. horrifying because she walks alone. It the the book bookends us and tells us she walks alone. It's completely horrifying, but isn't it preferable to um, uh, existing under conditions of absolute reality? Oh, that's 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 the <laughs> right. question, right? Is is that what she would rather have? I mean, if she's alone, she doesn't get anybody to to crush her her daydreams. She doesn't have. She gets to when she is alone. Previously, on the way to Hill House, is when she has her wonderful daydreams, and she seems. That's like the last uninterrupted happiness she has in the book. She has some happiness with Theo, but that we all know the other shoe's going to drop. Um, but she has these daydreams, and then she meets the people and, and tries to get some coffee. And when she has to talk to people, hell is other people. She has to talk to other people and say, don't you guys have these kind of similar daydreams about this wonderful place where you live? And they're like, no, it actually sucks. And it's just, you know, that's the absolute reality. So maybe you're right, Kat. Maybe walking alone is less horrifying for Oh my god! This is, like, this is all stuff that's like blowing my mind right I'm now. I'm still blown away that you brought in Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> it just—I couldn't stop thinking about it. I—I I was just like, oh, this is like this is Eleanor's thing. It's acts of service. This totally makes sense. She thinks she's able to provide in her own way something for others, um, and of course, she's been the the person who provides a service for her mother mm-hmm. all this time as well until yeah. she probably let her die. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to that theory more <laughs> and more now. <laughs> well, here's a final question to close on. So we've got absolute reality versus whatever the hell Hill House is. You, you three have heeded my call today beautifully on this call. <laughs> let's just say I, let's just say I email you all next week and say, guys, there's this haunted house and I think we should go spend a month in it and see what's going on. <laughs> Are you going to come with me or not? Or would you be, no, I will take my absolute reality. Thank you very much. Well, I am sort of like a, an avowed non-believer, but I would also be like, fuck no. <laughs> 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 I don't want to believe. Like I'm sort of on that sort of side of thing. You know, I've never experienced anything that I think is supernatural. So sorry, Dr. Neil Montague, if that is, if that is your name, <laughs> I'm not joining you. <laughs> You're coming though, cat, right? Because you you've been haunted plenty. No, I live my 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 head is my head is a haunted house anyway. I live I live in a haunted house, um, and I and I write I write haunted houses. I'm already in one. I don't need <laughs> and like Paul says, I don't need exterior confirmation. I really don't. That would be the worst. Um, well, um, every black person is going to yell at me for saying this, but hell yeah, I'll go with you, Neil. <laughs> Excellent. I'll go. I feel I'll like you've it. already probably done it, right? Have you stayed in like a haunted place, Johnny? Like with like all the places that you were talking about, the castle and all this stuff? Have you ever done like a night over in like a haunted space? I have, well, I've like, I live in San Antonio. It's allegedly the most haunted city in Texas, yada, yada. So there's a Is lot it? of hotels I've been to that, yeah. And like every hotel in San Antonio Wowza. basically will, if it's, if it's like any kind of decades old, as long as it's not like literally just been built like in the last like 10 years or something, they'll tell you, oh, no, we've got ghosts. So I've been to stuff like that. I haven't really been to any um, anything outlandish, I don't think. But I was planning to for some book research and also because I just bought a new camera and I'm, I'm trying to get more into stuff like that. There's some allegedly haunted and scary places around San Antonio. So I am going to go, including a place, uh, an, an old uh, rundown, empty nightclub where the devil, the devil allegedly appeared one night. Um, there's an old urban legend of the the, de- the the dancing devil. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but no. the devil shows up in the nightclub 
uh, dances with a woman all night, wows her, woos her. She doesn't realize who it is until she looks down at his feet, and he either has hooves or chicken feet, depending on what the story is. And it's in many of, like, you know, the, the I think his last name is Brumvold, but the uh, the Vanishing Hitchhiker, mm. those old uh, uh, urban legend books, it's in there. And that that nightclub is called El Camarancito, I believe, and it's in San Antonio here. And uh, you can go and, and visit, and I plan to go and take some pictures. <laughs> and people say, if you go and take pictures, the devil's going to follow you home. And we're going to see what happens if I vanish from the face of the earth like Ambrose Beers. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, man. Amazing. But I'll go with you, Neil. I'm, I'm there, man. Thank you. It'll be, it'll be me, you, and little Ted. We'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> and, and, and Kat, if anyone wants to hear about Kat's most recent haunting experience, go listen to the, her most recent appearance on this show where I, I spoke yeah. to her just hours after she was basically haunted by a little boy ghost in a hotel bedroom. It, it makes for a great story. It's not good. But this has been a great story. I've really enjoyed this. Um, and I think it was necessary for my show, um, but also fun, because I, I do believe that Hill House is the formative and most important modern horror story. I'll stand by that. I think, you know, The Exorcist and Carrie and Rosemary's Baby, they get oh so much credit for rebirthing the genre, and rightly so, but dark literature would be so much different. I think so much poorer had Jackson not written this novel and invested it with all the stuff we've talked about today. So thank you very much. Um, before you go, it's only fair, and I, I'd love to know, and I'm sure my listeners would love to know, what have you got coming next? I know, Johnny, Paul, your books have been announced. Kat, yours hasn't. But do you want to talk us through anyway? What, what's next from you guys? Uh, so I have a my, my novel, horror movie, a novel, really clever title. I worked hard at that. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll be out in the, the U.S. and the U.K. June 11th. Uh, it's sort of like a riff on a, I guess, a cursed film kind of uh, riff. Yeah, with, of course, because I can't not do it. Maybe some hints at uh, at ambiguity and, and playful uh, postmodern stupid stylings. I was going to say, have you gone a bit meta again? A little bit. A little bit. Cool. A little bit. I'm excited. <laughs> it's winging its way to me, I believe. I'm excited. What about you, Johnny? Uh, Devils Kill Devils comes out in September. Um, I'm not sure how much more I'm supposed to say about it. Um, I don't want to make it sound like it's hyper-secretive or anything, but... Uh, it it's uh it opens with a woman who just got married. Her name is Sarita. She has a guardian angel, and her or guardian angel beats her husband to death right in front of her on her wedding night, and things go crazier from there. It is a very different animal from the Spite House. Also. Nice for people that were into the Spite House. I'm I'm I love this book. I'm very excited about it. I'm wondering how people are going to receive it. Those who like the Spite House, because the Spite House is the kind of thing that got me onto a Shirley Jackson panel discussion and this is considerably more uh violent and and in a, a you know kind of a different vein of horror than that so be interesting to see how people respond yeah to it. I, I don't know why but when you were giving that very brief synopsis i started thinking it sounds like something that would pair well with gabino iglesias that i don't know why but that's what my mind went to right away i hope so i, I i'm a huge admirer of his work there's there's a tenaciousness to his work and i think there's a tenacity to this one and an nice. intensity that I think will appeal to people who are, are in that vein, uh, who like that kind of story. And that's September? September, yes. Kat, are you writing the Neverland book that you told me about? Yeah, no, well, I, I finished writing it. Um, it is, um, it's not out till 2025, unfortunately, which is, um, uh, in, I think it's going to be June 2025. 
Um, but it's yeah. So it's um, it's uh, a horror, obviously a horror story about <laughs> um, a group of um, runaway teenagers who form a sort of Lost Boys kind of um, uh, uh, community on a fictionalized version of Michael Jackson's abandoned Neverland Ranch. Wow. Yeah. So and eerie, eerie things progress from there, and you. It's sort of, I think it's, 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 well, it's, it's like, it's got some Jacksonish questions in it, you know, does, does the horror emanate from place or do we generate the horror ourselves? Well, I, I look forward to reading all three very, very much. They all sound great. And I, I, I sincerely hope you'll all come on the show to talk about them. I know that you and I have sort of planned that provisionally, Paul, and Johnny, I've yeah, reached absolutely. out to you very, again, provisionally. Kat, come back in 2025, please. But let's talk about all those books. Yeah, wonderful. Well, this time around, thanks for talking scared, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Lovely to see you. Yeah, that was fun. Sometimes I listen to myself in the edit and I just think, oh, give it a rest, Neil. (laughs) Eleanor Vance and Jack Torrance, Apollonian and Dionysian opposites. What a dick I am. <laughs> you can take the man out of Stuffy Academia, but you can't take the Stuffy Academic out of the man, it seems. But my pomposity aside, I am properly delighted with this episode because my choice of guests was fully vindicated. Not only were they deeply enthusiastic, they're incredibly insightful. And even now on, I don't know, like my sixth or seventh read-through, they gave me entirely new things to think about what about you did you read or reread hill house for this episode i know some of you planned to and you had pictures all over social media saying so and bless you for your efforts either way i hope this illuminated a new part of the house hope it opened a new creaking door and after everything we said i think the fundamental conclusion is that there is no concrete interpretation of this book this house or or this haunting. It's all flux and change, shadows and strange casts of light. That's the point. Not to work out how Hill House works, but to surrender to it. But I do think Johnny is right. I think Nell let her mum die. (laughs) Um, The one thing I do want to reflect on is how liquid the tone and atmosphere of the book is. Sure, It's a dark, horrid tale, but the four of us mentioned so many moments of humour, of joy, and that got me thinking about how important tonal dynamism is, a movement of tone and atmosphere. I've read a lot of books recently that I've enjoyed or admired, but they haven't hit me hard or made me love them. And it's only this conversation about this book that's clarified why for me. They're too monotonal. They begin in one register, which is generally unhappiness or hysteria or sorrow or despair, and then they continue that trajectory as if a human life is only fit for horror, if it's consistently deep and dark. And I think about the great horror novels, Hill House, The Shining, Salem's Lot, even Pet Cemetery, um, Cats, Looking Glass Sound, Paul's Head Full of Ghosts, Johnny's The Spite House, Tanana Reeve Do's The Reformatory. 
all those books have tones and atmospheres that weave and fluctuate. There's happiness there. It gets disturbed or destroyed, but we get to see that process and it makes us care. So that's my takeaway from this deep dive, if I have one thing, that lightness is as crucial to horror as darkness is. It's not a novel claim from me, far from it, more of a reaffirmation, but it's an important one, I think, if my opinion counts for sod all in this world. So read Hill House again, if you haven't already, and you'll be surprised how deft and comic it is. It's a delight. Oh, and do get in touch about any of this. You can reach me on all social media at TalkScaredPod. I'm in most places, but I'm increasingly enjoying Instagram, so find me there. Or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Tell me things about haunted houses and your favourite ghosts or whatever. Just tell me things. And if you want loads, and I do mean loads, of exclusive Talking Scared stuff... Sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. It's a few quid a month. There's lots of you now. It's, it's a lovely community and it keeps the flickering light on above my desk. Yeah. I'm excited about each of Johnny, Cat and Paul's forthcoming books. Johnny sounds incredible. A homicidal guardian angel. Yes, please. Hopefully they'll all be on the show in the future. But next week, I'm joined by Tim Leban one of the UK's premier horror writers with a penchant for adventurous nightmares. He's here to talk about his new Arctic bio-horror thriller, Among the Living. So be sure to come back for that. Until then, hold the hand that steadies you, stick together when things get dark, and seize your own cup of stars. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.